whether it's the Bible that's on your app or the Bible that's in your lap. Open your Bible, should be pretty easy, again, to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to pick up where we left off last week in Genesis chapter 1, verse, verses 26. We're going to step into chapter 2, and I don't know uh, about you, uh, if you watch Netflix shows or not, but sometimes if you get into a really good Netflix series, what will happen is this, this, the next episode will start with a recap of the previous episode. And so we actually kind of think about our sermon series kind of like a, a, a good Netflix series. You don't want to miss an episode. So in case you were not here last week, let me just kind of give you that bumper recap and tell you kind of where we've, uh, the ground that we've covered. So we, we basically scoped Genesis 1, 1, all the way through uh, Genesis 1.25, and uh, we talked about the author, that's Moses. He wrote this about 3,500 years ago, and uh, the audience was God's people who were wandering in the wilderness. They were coming from a place where they worship false gods. They were going to a place where they were going to worship false gods, and so they needed Moses, who was kind of like the, 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 the godfather of everybody. He was kind of like the, the, the parent figure for everybody who had put something in them that was going to help them protect everything that they held dear whenever they got into this place that didn't value what they valued. And so they're going through the wilderness, and then the arrangement of Genesis is, you know, Genesis can be pretty intimidating. There's a lot of questions that we bring to it. Genesis 1 through 12, or really 1 through 11, is the story of God's world. How did we get here? Why are we here? Where, and then where are we going next? And then Genesis 1, 12 through 50 is the story of God's work through guys like Abraham and, and Sarah and Hagar and, and Jacob and Isaac and Rebekah and and Joseph, and all of these figureheads uh, of the faith. And, and, you know, there's a lot of questions around Genesis 1, um, and, and we touched on some of those things, but uh, what we really saw from Genesis 1, in a nutshell, is that when God speaks, good things happen. And that's what we believe as a church. That's why this setting is so important, and we can't do without it. So when God speaks, chaos turns to order. When God speaks, light turns, or, or darkness turns to light. And when God speaks, empty things are filled. And so God is continuing to speak and create good things, and that leads us today. Uh, we're going to pick up where we left off last week in verse 26. Take a look with me. Then God said, so let me, let me pause right there. What we see is that there is a, a break in the wording uh, on, on this, this day of creation, because up to this point, it's been, and God, and God said, but here it says, then God said. And so what that's, what that's doing right here is it's signaling that something special is about to happen. Something unique, something different is about to happen. And we're supposed to kind of get on the edge of our seats and be like, okay, what's coming next? And then we see, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So what I want you to see right here, let's do some noticing together, is that the language for God is plural. Let us make God in our image. So Already we are introduced to the core Christian belief in Genesis chapter 1 of the Trinity. God, three in one, Father, Spirit, Son. And here's, here's what's mind-blowing, it'll make your head, your head hurt if you think about it too long, is that God has always existed. He's outside of space, He's outside of time, He's outside of matter. He's outside of our full comprehension, and that frustrates us a lot, doesn't it? But you're like, well, God, three and one, Father, Spirit, Son, how can he be three if, if he's one, and how can he be one if he's three? Uh, exactly. Uh, there's questions, right? But here's, here's a way that I was thinking about it, just to kind of make it personal and practical, is, is there any part of your life that you would have a hard time explaining? So, so I think if all of us, if we were asked like kind of maybe an awkward or a difficult question about something in our past, something that's going on in our life, something that we can't really clearly and fully explain, uh, there, there would be something in all of our lives that would be hard for us to explain, right? Uh, well, if that's true for finite you, how much true is that going to be for an infinite God? And, and, and so what reason has to do is to humbly kneel at the doorstep of the doctrine of the Trinity and say there is clarity in Scripture. There's also mystery, and a big part of that mystery is God, three in one, Father, Spirit, Son. But when you look back, um, here's what you see. The Trinity is all there. In Genesis 1.1, we see in the beginning, God. There's the Father. Verse 2, and the Spirit was hovering, getting ready to bring something out of nothing. There's the Holy Spirit. And in Genesis 1-3, we see, and God said. And who is that? That's Jesus. We know that from John 1-14, and the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. So already we have this Trinitarian community that is collaborating together to create something that is awesome. And we need to understand, why did God create? This is really important for us because it humbles us and it helps us see our place 
in the world. What is humility? It's, it's embracing your God-given place uh, in the world. And so why did God create us? Is it because he was lonely? Is it because he needed a hug? Is, is it because he was just waiting for, you know, beautiful snowflake you to, to fall and reassure him that he's doing a good job in his cosmic existence? No. <laughs> Actually, no. He was, he was here, this will blow your mind. He was fully content. He was fully complete. He was fully satisfied in his Trinitarian being. He didn't need us. He wants us. And so there's two reasons why a couple will have kids. Here's one way that I've heard it described. Maybe sometimes a couple, things are just not going good. And we're like, hey, I've got a bright idea. Let's bring a totally helpless, dependent human being into this not-so-great relationship, and that'll make it better. Bad idea. The, the bridge is out. Be careful. Uh, but that's one reason why, and some people think that's why God created us. He was lonely. He wanted Things weren't going so great. That's not why he created us. Then there's another reason. It, when, when a couple will have kids, things are going great. We have more than enough. We have an abundance. We have time. We have talent. We have treasure so much so that we want to share that and we want, to, we want to pour that into a, 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 a kid, a, a child. That's why God created us. Because he is a God of more than enough, not just good, good enough. And he wants to share his more than enough with his kids. And so what does it mean to be made in God's image? That's a great question. And it's loaded with implication for our everyday lives. But it, basically what it means is that humans, and humans alone, are uniquely uh, elevated above all other created things to reflect and to represent God's character in the world. To reflect and represent God's character in the world. And so here's kind of the, you know, if you're taking notes, you could write this down. Um, This is kind of the whole idea today. As God's image bears, we are given dignity, authority, and responsibility. This is, this is like kind of a one-sentence summary of what it means to be created in the beautiful image of God. And so now we're ready for the rest of verse 26. Let's continue and let's pick up right here and see how Genesis explains it. And let them, those created in my image, have dominion. So we don't really use that word a whole lot anymore. It's just a word for authority. It was associated in, for the original readers, uh, God's people in the wilderness. They would have heard dominion as kings and queens. You, you are a king or you are a queen if you exercised dominion. And basically what God is saying right here is you are my kings and queens who I am going to commission to go out and to justly partner with me to rule and reign and steward the creation. It's an incredible thought. And then he says, over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, verse 27 is interesting because it is a poetic summary of what God has done. And so what God does is he, it's, he does it three times. It's, it's like God is so pleased with what he, what he just created that he erupts into like singing. He erupts into poetry. And he says the same thing three, three times. I created male and female in my image. And what we're going to see uh, as we get into, I'm just going to kind of skip ahead briefly. You don't need to turn there. Just listen as I explain this. But in, in verse 28, we're going to see that God blessed them. And then in verse 31, we're going we're gonna to see that God is going to say that everything that he created was very good. And let me talk to you a little bit about this idea that God creating male and God created female in his marvelous, infinitely worthy image is, is a really good thing. And here's what we see. Um, and you're not going to notice this, you know, and, and don't, don't feel self-conscious about this. There's some things that when you know the original language, it will give you a clue to what God is communicating. And so um, this, is, this is an exceptional case, but there is one that I want to show you is uh, Genesis was written in Hebrew. And so the word image is a masculine term. Let us make man in our image. That's a masculine term. And in our likeness, that is a feminine term. And so what we see very early on is God is saying something to us, that the male and the female binary is true to God's character and is very good in God's eyes. And so what I want to do 
is I want to talk about this. I, I, I don't want to rush through this because here's, I'm going to share three big implications of the male and female binary being very good. And then we're going to talk a little bit about what it looks like to reflect and represent the image of God. But we need to spend some time right here. No, no opportunistic treatment of the image of God can ignore the, uh, the essential nature of gender to our personhood. And so I want to talk about this for a little bit because, you know, why, why would you come to a setting like this? I mean, it's raining outside, or, or maybe even why, why would you watch online and take the time to do this? It's not because you need information. We've got plenty of information. You know, you can go like YouTube and maybe watch a Jordan Peterson video or something like that and, you know, you know have your mind blown and get all this cool information. The reason why you would come and keep coming back to a church like Coastway is because there is interpretation that is happening. It's not just information transfer. It's like, the world is crazy, and I need a little help making some sense of it. So that's kind of what we, what we want to do right here. Here's the first implication of the male and female binary being true to God's character and good in God's eyes. First, any society, historically and globally, that flourishes needs men and women with masculine and feminine qualities working together to fulfill God's good plans. So in other words, we need male and female in order for a society to flourish. Secondly, God is the fountainhead. He's the source. He's the beginning of every uniquely positive male and female attribute. And so you see something good in a man that came from God. You see something good in a, in a, in a female that came from God. And, you know, if we're being honest, there's a lot of stereotypes about male and female. Some are helpful, some are true, but a lot of them are just, are just harmful. And we got to be really careful with just like labeling. But God does say, he says, male and female are created equal, equal in God's image to equally reflect God's image. And there are distinct roles and abilities that God gives to male and that God gives to female, and we need both. And if you want to learn a little bit more about that, next week, the, the question we're tackling is, what is a man? So it's for, it's for the men. Ladies, we're encouraging you to come and to listen in and hold us accountable to what God's Word says about manhood. And then the following week, you're like, okay, I'm excited about this, right? Okay, this is like free counseling. But then the next week, it's like, what is a woman? And so really, the, the, you know, the heartstrings are for the, for, the, for the ladies in the room. And guys, come, and we're, we're here to support and to lead and to encourage um, encourage the ladies to live into this vision of, of biblical womanhood. But that's the next two weeks. Uh, but what we see is that God is the fountainhead of every positive trait that you see in males and females. Third, and this is where we're going to spend some time. Genesis shows us that God, not man, is the designer and the definer of all good, including gender. Now, I need to say this. God designed gender very good, not as very bad. There's nothing, no part of creation at this point that is bad, that has been confused. And when God says that something is very good, that means it's in place to enable life. It's in place to enable us to flourish. And what we see is that gender is an essential part of human flourishing. And here's, a, here's the kind of the nuclear question, the honest question. How did we get to such a confusing and conflicted place with gender and sexuality? Now, that's a fair question, I think, that we're all asking on some level. And what I want to tell you is that Genesis doesn't answer every question that we bring to it, but it does show us where it all started. And I want to show you where the confusion started. Because as we keep reading, and we'll spend more time on this in the weeks ahead as we walk through Genesis 1 through 12, but as we keep reading in Genesis 3, Adam and, Adam and Eve choose to rebel against God. And what does it mean to rebel against God? It means that you redefine good and evil in your own eyes. And you say, I know better than God. And so they redefine good and evil on their own terms. And so they, they wake up that day with a little too much main character energy. And they're puffed up and they're thinking too highly of themselves. And they're like, move over God, I know better and so what happens is, and this is very interesting, the Bible is so interesting, it's true, it's interesting. 
is, uh, you know, the, the serpent, the devil appears in serpent form and he tempts Eve and she, she, she rebels, she believes the lie of the sneaky snake. And what happens is, here's what's interesting, is uh, Eve was not startled when she encountered the serpent. You ever wondered why that was? Why she doesn't say, whoa, 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 where's a talking snake? A snake talks to me? It's like, I'm out of here, man. It's like, no, no, uh, no dice. But uh, it's because they had seen the serpent before. The serpent didn't just show up all of a sudden, but they had gotten used to the serpent being around. And he was crafty and he was cunning and he knew exactly when to come in and to tempt at a point of vulnerability. And that's exactly what happens. And how does he do it? He redefines God's word by asking a question. Did God really say? And that's the same question that he, that he asks us every, every single time. That's where every sin begins. It's like Satan is a powerful creature, but he's a predictable creature. Every sin starts with this question, did God really say? And it gets us to rebel and redefine. And it leads Adam and Eve to do that. They rebel against God's loving command to avoid the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which was a tree of death. And they were called to a tree of life. And so the result was brokenness enters the world, sin enters the world, suffering enters the world, sickness enters the world. And I want to show you what was one of the byproducts of sin striking the world. This is in Genesis chapter 3, verse 7 and verse 8. You can, if you want a Bible drill, you can turn there, but it's going to appear on the screen and I'll just read it to you. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And then verse 8 says, And the man and his wife hid themselves. So one of the first byproducts of brokenness is this inner sense that something is wrong with my body. Something is shameful about my body. And here's the honest question. Was there anything different about Adam and Eve's bodies after they eat or ate from the fruit than before? I mean, no. They had been streaking around the garden for God knows how long, wearing nothing but a smile. <laughs> and here we are. As soon as they reject God's word, something instantly changes about their self-view, right? Back to Eden. Back to Eden. And instead of looking at their bodies... Through God's eyes, what are they doing? Now they're looking at their bodies through their own eyes. And they don't have the ability to interpret reality apart from God's perspective. What's the result? Something's wrong with me, and something's wrong with my body. So do you see it? The whole idea that something is wrong with your body is a consequence of thinking that you know better than God. And what is the most obvious example that we see all around us today in our, host, in our host culture? It is the redefinition of God's design for gender and for sexuality. And so, there's going to be a few surprising things that are going to be said today, but it's all going to be rooted in Scripture. I just want you to know that. If you openly say things like this, gender is fixed, not fluid. Or you say something like, all forms of sexual activity outside of the loving limits of a heterosexual marriage are sinful and unnatural. What have you just done? You have declared war against the majority culture's value system. And it's going to get you instantly labeled. We see this all over, right? You are going to be called a homophobic, regressive, intolerant bigot. Very tolerant view, right? And, he, and here we are. We wonder, how did we get here? And where, where, where a lot of this came from, what accelerated a lot of this thinking, uh, was a 17th century French philosopher by the name of René Descartes. You may have heard of him. But re, what, what Descartes said, he was a very pessimistic, he was a very nihilistic thinker, you know, not the type of guy that you want to sit down and have tea with. But he says this, this statement that most of us have heard, I think, therefore I am. And so what are the tentacles of that philosophy? Well, here's what happens is now you can take your birth sex 
and you can divide it from your gender identity, and you can say that the two are mutually exclusive. And so what happens, um, what God says is, I am, therefore I think. I am who he says I am, therefore I think that way. But what culture says, what Dakar was saying, is you think, therefore you are. So if I think that I'm a female, it doesn't matter what my body or biology say. My, my mind, what I think, wins the day. And this is how we got here. I'm just giving you a little bit of, of, of a history on, on how we got to this confusing, conflicted moment. And here's what, what, happens, to, uh, what happens now is the culture celebrates this. It's gone from a stigma to a celebration, and the pace at which it has moved is staggering. You know, 10, 20, 30 years ago, to, to, to come out and to um, plant the flag of a transgender lifestyle would have, would have been kind of taboo. But today, it's celebrated. And I'll give you an example of this. Maybe, um, maybe you are familiar with uh, this social media influencer, Dylan Mulvaney. And so Dylan is a, is a transgender woman and uh, has an incredibly like, large following on, on TikTok and on Instagram, on social media. And what, what Dylan is, has, has been doing um, is from day one, the, the, the decision that Dylan made was, I'm going to detail my journey of turning from a man into a woman, and I'm going to show it to the entire world. And so what Dylan has done is, is uh, basically going public with what Dylan calls the days of girlhood. And so right now, uh, Dylan is coming up on like, I think like almost a year of the days of girl, girlhood. And these, these videos are getting millions and millions of views. And uh, now Dylan has gone through a, feminine, a feminization surgery, like a reconstruction surgery of, of Dylan's face. And there's this big reveal that like so much of the country is just like eagerly anticipating. And so anytime like Dylan will post something about being a woman, is it's just applause, applause, applause. You give me hope. You're what's right in the world if you start reading the comments. And anybody who disagrees is like, you know, a, a Puritan with a pitchfork who needs to be excommunicated off the island. And so, so here's, what's, here's what's going on. with I'm going to go from a man to a female or a female to a man. I think, therefore, I am. Here's what it is. It is a false retelling of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And let me explain this to you. So, when, you are, when you're born and you step into a body uh, and you begin to experience these transgender instincts, or especially, is what happens is you are then subject to suffering. And I don't want to speak lightly about this because transgenderism is not a chosen experience. I want, to be, I want to be clear. I want to be very fair. It is not a chosen experience. If you talk to a transgender individual, they're going to say, I didn't choose this. Uh, just like many other people did not choose whatever, whatever patterns are in their life that they would say, man, this is confusing. But what happens is you step into a body and you begin to suffer. Maybe you're, maybe you're bullied. This happens a lot. Maybe you're abused. Oftentimes that's what happens on the uh, on the other side of these instincts, or maybe there was a prayer that was never answered. Oftentimes, that's what leads to this. And then you become a victim. I have been suffering unjustly since day one. And so this is a false form of incarnation. Jesus steps in innocently and uh, suffers unjustly. And so what you're doing is you're, you're putting yourself into the, the, the feet of Jesus and it's, it, it becomes an incarnation. And then what happens is you say, God, you, you, you got it wrong. And God, you need to repent to me. And so what I'm going to have to do is I'm going to have to be crucified in your place to atone from your, for your sin against me instead of my sin against you. And so you go under the knife of gender reassignment surgery. And it's the cultural form of crucifixion, where we we basically take God's place. And then what happens, and this is what's going on with Dylan, and why the world is so excited to see, like, what does Dylan look like after going through this feminization surgery, is then there's a, a false resurrection. Is you emerge 
as you truly are, as you are supposed to be. And what happens is you give hope to the world, and you, you actually, if you start seeing where our culture is going with this, is you, you are celebrated, and you are in, in many ways worshipped. So it's a false incarnation, it's a false crucifixion, it's a false resurrection, but here's what the gospel says, and this is why it's so unpopular. God does not repent to us, we repent to Him. And it's so confusing, it's so conflicting, because the church is confused, the culture is confused. And there's two types of questions that come out of this. There are, it's good for us to know this, there are trick questions, and then there are honest questions. A trick question... It's like, um, what's always coming but never arrives? Like, you know, make your brain hurt. You're like, oh, I don't know. Well, it's tomorrow, okay? That, that's what is always coming but never arrives. But what happens is there's these trick questions that someone of a, maybe of an LGBTQ um, persuasion or belief, um, who we love, who we want to bless um, and hear, uh, may say something that is intended to trick you and make you sound like an idiot and make you question your beliefs and make you feel like you're everything that's wrong with society as a, as a Bible-believing Christian. So there, there are trick questions, and there's no, there's no win in that. Um, one, you know, one honest question would be like, if you, if you sense that, just be like, hey, listen, is there anything that I could say that would open you up to reconsider what you already believe? If not, it's like, I love you, but I'm not going to fight with you. That's a, that's a salt and light Christian way to navigate that. Um, but then there are honest questions. And here's, here's what an honest question would be. And it's a very good question. Can you experience same-sex attraction and transgender instincts and still be a Christian? And I want to be very clear and biblical right here. The answer is emphatically yes. Emphatically yes. Yes, because different people, and this is a part of the humility that we all need to understand, different people are tempted in different ways. But what we all share is disordered desires. We, we, want, we bless what we should curse, and we curse what we should bless. <laughs> That's a part of the broken condition. And so here's what I want to say about this. For some, for some it's a substance. You're predisposed to alcoholism. For others, it's a social uh, disorder, uh, disorder desire, where you just gossip and like you tear people down and you lie and you slander and it's just like you can't stop it. And it's like you're predisposed to that. But for others, it's sexual, whether it's a homosexual sin or a heterosexual sin. We're, we're all tempted and we're all broken in different ways. But here's what I want to say very clearly. Just like you can be a Christian and still wrestle with heterosexual lust, so can you be a Christian and wrestle with homosexual lust. We don't believe, what do we believe as Christians? By grace, through faith, right? Not by works so that no one may boast. So here's, to, to give clarity, we don't believe that people go to heaven because of heterosexuality. And we don't believe that people go to hell for homosexuality. The people who go to heaven are forgiven sinners. The people who go to hell are unrepentant sinners who say, God, you need to repent to me. I don't need to repent to you. But a forgiven sinner says, no, it's the other way around. And so what must be there for all people is a recognition that my desires are broken. And I need two things from God that I can't give to myself. I need forgiveness and I need freedom. Forgiveness and freedom are the two great outcomes that come from surrendering your life to Jesus. Forgiveness means you feel clean. Freedom means you are being changed. You're being changed and unchained from the things that led you into the darkness, that led you into disorder, that led you into emptiness. And here's the problem that we have. Most of us only want half of the gospel. Most of us only want forgiveness. And for example, what's often said is, with the, with the gender identity conversation, um, with same-sex attraction, is I was born this way. And you know what? In many cases, and I'm not going to say all, in many cases what's being said 
is God made me this way. So one of two things must be true. Number one, God is wrong, needs to repent to me. Or number two, God was right and I don't need to change. But what's not factored in is that we're wrong. And this is what happens when we feel it's our place to redefine good and evil when it comes to our sexual ideals. And so here's the honest issue. Were some people born gay? Were some people born with transgender instincts? Well, we, we cannot say that for certain scientifically. We can't. We don't know. Um, but we can actually say with more certainty and clarity spiritually, yes, according to the Bible, we're all born with disordered desires. And and those desires lead us to sin. They lead us to self-rule. But instead of giving ourselves to it, uh, to ourselves, what do we do? We repent. We repent to God. And so saying I was born again, or excuse me, saying I was born with same-sex attraction, uh, with transgender desires, so that makes it okay, is like a married man Telling his wife, I was born with adulterous desires, and so I'm going to cheat on you, and you just need to affirm me and tell me that it's okay. God made me this way. It's the exact same logic, biblically. And according to the Bible, here's here's what we know. We were born in sin and must therefore be born again. In other words, we need to be made new in God's image so we can pursue desires that agree with God's definition of very good. So Christians in the room, let me talk to you. You are not crazy for holding to God's vision for gender and sexuality. It doesn't matter how how much celebrities or co-workers or, or, or culture says otherwise, you are not crazy. It doesn't matter how politicians or peers or professors say this. You are not crazy. And here's why. Because in the beginning, God. So God gets the first word on good and evil. And He will get the last word on good and evil. And meanwhile, He has spoken very clearly on this issue. And what has He clearly spoken? That in creating male and female, that's very good. That heterosexual marriage is very, very good. And what is our job as the church? It's not to be proud. It's not to be rude. It's not to say that our sins are lesser than um, our gay neighbors, because they're not, by the way. It's for us to say, I believe this, I'm going to walk in this, and I'm going to ensure that the way that I walk in this is going to speak grace and also speak truth to a very confused culture. And part of that means, as a church, we're all sexual sinners and we repent of all sexual sin, whether that's heterosexual or homosexual. And so if, if you or someone you know, most of us, you know, whether, whether it's in the room or outside the room, we know someone who is experiencing same-sex attraction. As someone who is experiencing transgender impulses, here's what we want to say. There is grace. There is hope. There is rest in the gospel of Jesus Christ for you, just like there is every other sinner at Coastway Church. And here's what we want to say. No matter the form of sexual sin that the enemy attacks us with and that we're tempted to compromise with, We're all sexual sinners. We repent of all sexual sin. And the desire would be for us to do that in community with one another, walking forward toward God's definition of good and evil. So pray for your community group leaders this week and come back next week if you want to hear more. So uh, with that scaffolding in place, verse 28, and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. So vegans, this was your moment. But buckle up because the cheeseburgers are coming. Verse 30. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, 
everything that has the breath of life. I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. Verse 31. And God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was what? Very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. So here's what I want to show you. We're going to go through, through these pretty quickly. To bear God's image means we are created with dignity, with authority, and responsibility. I want to talk about each for just a few minutes. First of all, as image bearers, we are given dignity. So dignity is another word for worth. And verse 27 makes it clear that we were created in the image of a God who is eternally and infinitely worthy. And a way to think about this is if an eternally and infinitely worthy God creates kids, what do we have? We have worth. We have value. And a way to think about this is maybe you know about Prince Harry and, and Meghan Markle. Apparently, they, I think they moved to like California because they're like, we're not really into this whole royalty vibe. But they have two, two cute kids. And just because of who their, their dad is, Prince Harry, um, those two kids are entitled to the titles prince and princess simply because of who their dad is. And similarly, our worth is not in our works. Those kids didn't do anything to earn that. They were born. They were created. Similarly, we didn't do anything to earn the image of God or to earn the dignity that he endows on every man, woman, and child. It's intrinsic to being made in the image of God and being his kids because we don't always feel worthy, do we? Often we feel less than, lonely, left out, like the, the world doesn't want us or our family doesn't want us or people don't want us. But there's so many obstacles to recovering the image of God. I want to... I love the way one of my preaching mentors talks about this. He says there's two mistakes that we make when attempting to recover the image of God. And one of those mistakes is that we personalize animals. We're going to talk about that. And we depersonalize humans. So we personalize animals. I, I am not against dogs, by the way. I love dogs. And I, I feel like it's almost cliche at this point for the preacher to get up and make fun of cats. I don't see what the problem is. Like, Dogs, cats, whatever. If you like dogs, great. If you like cats, that's, that's great too. But if we're being honest, the way we treat our pets is a little surprising. If someone from 200 years ago were to show up and see the way that we treat our pets like kids, they would say something. Something is off. We do this, right? <laughs> It's like, well, wow, maybe I treat my pet more like a person than I treat person like a pet. <laughs> and so if you Google, uh, actually, if you Google pet stores in Myrtle Beach and kid stores in Myrtle Beach, you're going to get about the same amount of results. One of the things that's really par uh, popular now is what what's called dog parlors or like a dog salon. I grew up in the mountains of Western North Carolina, so we would just throw Bubba and Lady in the creek, and that was good enough. But today they're getting Manny Petty. It's like... <laughs> what's going on over here? But it's more and more common. Um, another common thing is dog funeral homes. And, you know, um, it's not all bad. It's not. But it can blur the image of God and our perception of it. we got to be really careful um, treating our pets like people and people like pets. But here's what we also do. We dehumanize people. Now, three examples of this. Racism, pornography, and abortion. Racism says that someone possesses less of the image of God than I do. It is offensive to God. It is offensive to the church. And what, what we say is we must, in order for us to be a racist and to think that because of the color of my skin or for whatever, whatever reasons we have our, our roots of racism, is we have to say, I'm more human than you are. And we have to dehumanize someone before we can actually be a racist. The first thing that happened leading up to the Holocaust with Nazi Germany and World War II, what did they do to Jews? They took their name and they traded it for a number. Uh, the transatlantic slave trade, apartheid in South Africa, colonial slavery, it was all the result of thinking this way, of not having a big vision of the image of God. How did civil rights activists like Martin Luther King Jr., bless him, how, how did they have such devotion and commitment to endure humiliation, imprisonment, 
opposition and even assassination. They deeply believed in the image of God. So we want to do something about racism. Then we have to deeply believe that every man, woman, and child on planet Earth that ever has walked, is currently now walking, or ever will walk, possesses the dignity of the image of God, just like you and just like me. And as a church, that's what we want to be about. But then there's pornography. Pornography, what does it do? It depersonalizes, it dehumanizes the actors, treats them as disposable, and robs them of dignity. That's a person made in the image of God. That's someone's daughter. That's someone fearfully and wonderfully made. And the women who go back into that lifestyle, what do they do? You talk to them, you hear from them, they hate their lives. They hate the men who exploit them and who do these awful things to them. And the number one way that we repent and recover from pornography is we get back to the image of God. Additionally, abortion, and I don't know if you know this or not, but today is Sanctity of Life Sunday. And it's a day where churches lift our voices for the voiceless and the most vulnerable in society. And that's the preborn, and that's the unborn. And here's what's interesting. Did you know that virtually no bioethicists deny the fact that life begins at conception anymore? Now, so here's what's happened. Is the argument that, well, life begins at conception, so you shouldn't have an abortion. That doesn't hold water anymore with a pro-abortion or an abortion-minded majority. So now it's like, just because the fetus is a human doesn't make that human a person. And so the advent of personhood theory, which basically says, until you have moral consciousness, you are not a person, and you do not have rights. And so a baby can, can be getting ready to be born and can still be aborted, but it wasn't a person. And so that's the logic. And how do you, how do you get to this place? You deny the image of God. How do you get out of this place, you recover the image of God. To be clear, at Coastway Church, we will always, always speak out for the preborn and the unborn, the most invisible and vulnerable population of society. From conception, babies in the womb are completely human, fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of God. And that's why we love and we support Coastline Women's Center and Abigail's Place. And these sinners, are, are, they are run by such incredible people who believe down to the fibers of their being that every little baby has the right to live and every fearful mother has the right to receive care and for, for someone to walk with them. Pastorally speaking, I want to say this, we love any and all people who have experienced abortion. And there's grace, there's hope, there's rest in the gospel that our church is called to offer. But amidst all this, the, the, the racism, the pornography, the poverty, the abortion, God's, God comes and says, I will give you your dignity back. I will put it in you. I will put it on you. It will be irrevocable. Nobody can take it. And so the image of God, what is it like? It's like gold. I've heard it described this way. Gold, no matter the age, no matter the form, no matter the shape, no matter the origin, it possesses its value like nothing else ever has. And so with the image of God, because you are created with dignity in the image of God, you have imminent value, and it can never be taken away. As image bearers, number two, we are given authority. Verse 28 says, have dominion. So dominion, that's a word for authority. Over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So uh, authority, what is it? It's being in a position where, where both your decisions and actions are going to impact people. It's being in a position where your decisions and your actions are going to impact people. So parents, you have authority. Employers, you have authority. Coaches, teachers, bosses, supervisors, professors, you have authority. Church leaders have authority. But most of us, we have a very unbiblical outlook on authority. It's like authority equals allergy. It's like, I don't like that word. Don't say that word. And why is it? It's because we're it's because we've lost the image of God. And we've lost sight of the whole purpose of authority to begin with, which is what? Well, when authority is introduced in Genesis, it's a very good thing. It's a very good thing. We see that all authority starts and ends with God. And so what does he do? He uses his authority to speak and act in ways that give life. So Jesus comes with authority. And what does he say to demons? He says, out. What does Jesus say to disease? He says, no more. What does Jesus say to disaster? Peace be still. 
What does Jesus say to death? Overruled. Who doesn't want to be under that type of authority? But that's what it looks like to image the authority of God in ways that give life instead of ways that precipitate death. And what we see is that all authority, it comes from and it ends with God. And we're to take our God-given authority and speak and act in ways that give life. And how do we recover God's vision for life-giving, image-bearing authority? It's very simple. You've got to view yourself as under authority before you look to be in authority. You are under the Word of God, Christian. You are under the Word of God. That means that you confess your sin. That means that you repent of your sin. That means that you forgive fellow sinners. That means that you humble yourself in the eyes of the Lord and those around you. And when you do that with your authority, you will be a leader worth following. You will be an authority figure who's respected, and you will give life with your God-given authority. Number three, as image bearers, we are given responsibility. So back in verse 28, we see, And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Subdue is another word for cultivate, like take the raw materials and make something really good. So take responsibility for cultivating creation. So what God is saying is, as my image bearers, let's go out together and cultivate the raw materials of the earth in a way that produces life. Let's take what's there and let's organize it in a way that leads to flourishing, in a way that forms people, not disfigures uh, people. And, and, And let's do this together. So you think about it, why didn't God create the world with cars, with skyscrapers, with businesses, with schools, with churches, with restaurants? It's because he's equipped and he's entrusted us to go out and do that with him. You know, our, our daughter, she's going to appreciate her toys when she goes and picks them up instead of if we just go and pick them up. And she's going to have more ownership for what she has. She's going to have a deeper appreciation for what she's been given because she said this is a privilege, not a right. And so with us, God says, hey, go and take ownership. Go and take responsibility. And so here's the question I want to ask you. Are you taking responsibility for what God has entrusted you with? Are you taking responsibility for what God has trusted you with? And we we try to be really practical. Three ways to think about this. Time, talent, and treasure. Are you taking responsibility for your time? Do you have a schedule? Do you have a plan? Do you have priorities? And are you bringing all of those things together in ways that take responsibility and in ways that give life to others instead of taking life from others. Uh, additionally, with your talent, here's, here's the question. You, you need to know what you're good at, by the way. You know, it's, you know, it's kind of the joke about like the humble brag. It's, I think it's just, it's just self-awareness. It's like, you know, you are good. You are gifted at something and you want to lean into that. And so if you don't know what you're good at, the question you need to ask is, how do I discover what I'm good at? The church is a great place to start, by the way. But another, another uh, question you need to ask is, if you know what you're good at, how do I develop what I'm good at? So if you're a teacher, if you're an engineer, if you're an architect, if you're a parent, if you're a church leader, if, if, if you, if you, regardless of your role in, in society, it's just like, how can I take what I'm good at and how can I offer it to other people in ways that brings good into their lives? And lastly, it's treasure, time, talent, and treasure. So what, how do we take responsibility for our treasure? Well, it's very simple. We give first to honor God. We save to be wise. We live on the rest to teach ourselves contentment. So this means you have a budget. If you're a married couple, if you're single, you have a budget. And on that budget, you budget, I'm going to give first to honor God. I'm going to save to be wise. I'm going to live on the rest to teach myself uh, contentment. So take a look with me at uh, verses 1 through 3, and we're almost home. Uh, Chapter 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So I want you to notice with me that the seventh day ends differently than all the other days. Every other day ends with, and there was evening and there was morning the first through the sixth day. But there's no evening and morning on the seventh day. Why is that? It's because day seven describes God's never-ending ideal for creation. And what is it? That we would find rest in His perfect 
image. But we don't. <laughs> That's the problem, is we all fall short. And we're like broken mirrors. If you ever try to like make out your figure in a broken mirror, it's going to be all disfigured and distorted. And you're like, What's, what, is, what is wrong with me? It's like, that's how we are. We, are. we have broken the image of God and we poorly reflect it and poorly represent it to the world around us. And it's like, why do we struggle to view ourselves rightly? Why are we anxious? Why are we afraid? Why are we ashamed? Why do we believe these lies about God, about ourselves, and about others? It's because we are like broken mirrors. But here's, here's what's great. Despite our brokenness, there's still hope. Because what happens is God sends, sends His Son, Jesus Christ, to perfectly and to personally reflect the image of God to us and for us. And so the disciples, in John 14, 9, what happens is they say, Jesus, show us God. And then uh, Jesus looks back and He says, well, you've seen me, you've seen God. And then in Hebrews 1, 3, the author says that Jesus is the exact imprint of the image of God, stepping into the story to remake us in His image. And so what happens is He lays aside all of His dignity. He lays aside His authority, and He takes complete responsibility for our sin and for our shame. And in doing so, He makes it possible for us to recover dignity, for us to recover a right relationship with authority, for us to recover a right sense of responsibility. And some of you, here's he restores it. And some of you, you're like, I need that. Because I don't feel like I have any dignity. I, I don't know how to relate to authority. I don't know how to take responsibility. And here's the hope. It's not a question of, can God do these things? It's not a question of, will God do these things? We know He will. Because in Philippians 1.6, we read that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. On the day when the image of God is fully and completely restored in, in all of us. So that work began on the day when God made you in His image. And that work continued on the day when Jesus bore your sins on the cross and in your place and emerged with resurrection power to remake you in His image so that we could get back to Eden, so that we could get back to His image. And I believe that if we will rest, if we will rest in His work, and if we will reflect His ways, it will change us. It will change you. It will change our church. It will change our city. It will change our world. Let's pray that that would happen right now.